Good morning. This uh, morning we have the privilege of studying together Parsha's Vayishlach. And as we do every week, we'll begin with an overview of the Parsha and then delve into specific Psukim. Vayishlach appears on page 170 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. <clears throat> and our Parsha begins with the reunion, the reconciliation between Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov has been on the run. Almost 22 years have passed. 20 years he was living with Lavan and working for his father-in-law. And now he is preparing for the reunion with his brother Esav. Time has passed and the question is, with time's passage, has Esav's feelings, his enmity, his anger subsided? What will we find and who will he find when he comes to Esav? So what does Yaakov do in order to prepare for this uh, reunion? Yaakov does a number of things. Number one, he sends Malachim. Yaakov sends Malachim. Translate Malachim. Angels. So last uh, week, for those who don't attend Boker Tone Synagogue on Shabbos, last Shabbos, and for those who do, but who have forgotten because it's already Tuesday, <laughs> last uh, Shabbos I spoke in the morning about the dream of Yaakov of angels ascending and descending the ladder. And I pointed out that in Sefer Bracious, when there's a reference to angels, we have a consistent debate of Machlokas between Rashi and the Ibn Ezra. Does it mean literally angels? Rashi here writes... Malachim, the opening Rashi on our Pasha Rashi writes, Malachim Mamash, literally angels. Yaakov had this ability to invoke heavenly angels, and Yaakov said, Heavenly angels, I need you to go scout out, I need you to go advocate for me, go to Esau, check it out, and help me. Whereas the Ibn Ezra says, No, these weren't heavenly angels, these were messengers, human beings. Yaakov needed a job done, and there were human beings who acted as his angel, who helped him, and went and did it on his behalf. Later, when Yosef is sent by Yaakov to go look for his brothers near Shechem, Torah tells us cryptically that he runs into a man. The man says, hey, how you doing? What are you looking for? Maybe I can help you. Yosef says, I'm looking for my brothers. He says, oh, they went this way. Says Rashi, who's that man? None other than the Malach Gavriel, the angel Gavriel. Says the Ibn Ezra, what are you talking about? It's a man. It's a person. So Yosef and said, do you need help? Happy to help you. Who are you looking for? Maybe I can help you. It was a man acting in a way that he was Yaakov's angel. And I suggested to you last week that perhaps the dream of the angels ascending and descending the ladder is not a dream of angels that are made in heaven, but is a dream of angels that are made here on earth. Angels are made in earth in the way that we treat one another. And Yaakov, when he leaves the, insul- the insularity, he leaves the protection of the base Medrash, and he's about to go live with Lavan, he's about to encounter the world, he remembers that our mission, our purpose in life is to be an angel for another. That's who we are. We are a people who are to Nikadesh Olam, Marom that we sanctify God's name down here on earth by being angels towards one another, the same way angels sanctify God's name where? B'Shmei Marom, 
up there in heaven. And at the end of the parsha, and that's why it says they ascend before descend, because angels are made here on earth, they're not made in heaven. And then the end of the parsha, Lavan and Yaakov go their separate ways, and Lavan encounters a group of people. The Medrash says these people are thieves and robbers. You find who you are. You tend to gravitate towards like people. Lavan finds people who it turns out are like him. They are Ramayim, they're thieves, they're robbers. At the end of the, uh, turn back one page. Yaakov halach ledarko, vayifka'u bo malachei alokim. Yaakov also goes on his way. Who does he encounter? Angels. Rashi says, heavenly angels, to give him a bracha. Malachim shalat Yisrael bo lekrasso, lavosa la'aretz. Heavenly angels. Says the Ibn Ezra, he was escorted. So again, you have this consistent machlokas, and it appears here in the beginning of our parsha. So reminder that our mission, our purpose in life, is to be angels for one another, to help one another. And in the drush, I quoted several stories of people who were angels for others. You may have followed the story last week of the woman who ran out of gas in Philadelphia. This homeless man told her, "Stay in your car, lock the door. It's a bad neighbor. I'll get you gas." Spent his last penny. She couldn't repay him. She had no cash on her. And he acted like her angel. He rescued her. He took care of her. And she reciprocated. Like Yaakov found angels because he was an angel. So this homeless man found an angel in her because he acted to her as an angel. She set up a GoFundMe page. I said on Shabbos it was over $300,000 that it raised. It's now over $350,000 it has raised uh, to help this homeless man get started on life again. All because he interrupted his day to think not about how he had spent the last $20 on himself but how he could be an angel for her. This is our mission. He sent angels. When we do something for someone else, we are their angel. Yaakov prepares for this encounter in three ways. Right? Always hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Prepare for the worst. Yaakov hopes for the best, that it will be brotherly reunion, a reconciliation, loving, but he's prepared for the worst. How does he prepare for the worst? He does three things. What are the three things he does? Diplomacy, gives gifts. Prayer, turns to Hashem and asks for help. And military preparations. He girds himself and his children for war. By the way, this is a formula. When we encounter the Esav, when we have to confront and lobby and advocate in our lives for the matters, the issues that matter the most for our brothers and sisters in Israel or for ourselves, these are the three things. We practice diplomacy. Israel as a country is engaged in diplomacy, rigorous diplomacy. It has a superior military, and hopefully it also has the great advantage of a nation of people who know how to pray. Here's the question I have. Why is Yaakov praying? I understand the initiative. We've discussed several times in the Parsha class. We discuss very often in the Amunashir on Wednesday mornings. The ratio or the relationship between Amunah and Bitachon, faith and trust, and Hishtadlis, initiative, effort. I can't put in too much initiative. It's a lack of trust. I can't sit back passively as a spectator claiming I have trust and I'm unwilling to show any initiative. I have to have that right ratio. So I understand why Yaakov says to God, I'm not relying on a miracle. So I'm preparing my children for war. I'm also engaged in diplomacy in an effort to avoid war. But the third, namely prayer, why is prayer funny here? Why is it unusual? 
What do we know about this episode before it even happens? We know it's going to turn out well. And how do we know it's going to turn out well before it even happens? Why do we know that? How are we confident? Why would Yaakov have a right to be confident about that? Because the Rebona Shalom promised him. God told him, Yaakov, what are you worried about? What are you afraid of? I got your back. Dveka, stick with me. You stick with me, I got your back, it's all going to be good. Yaakov says, that's nice, God, but if you'll excuse me, I have to pray. You understand the question? God is telling Yaakov, you have nothing to worry about, it's all good, I got your back. And he says to God, thanks so much, but if you can excuse me for a moment, I've got to pray to God that it's all going to be okay. Why is he davening here? So of course, Chazal tell us, he was worried that he was unworthy. God's promise existed for someone who was worthy. He had used up his worthiness. I've been diminished through all your kindness. I've used up my credit. I'm in the red. I'm going into the debt column. God, so when you made your promise, it was when I had a surplus, when my account was full. But now that I've depleted my account and I'm in the red, maybe now I can't rely on the promise. But that's not, doesn't make sense because God's promise is not conditional. God's promise seems to be unconditional. We discussed in the past, you can listen online, I think from the Slana Marebbe, what does it mean, Shema Yigro Machet? Anyway, if God promises you, what do you mean I don't believe in God's promise because I think I'm unworthy? You think God didn't know about the chet? God is well aware of any unworthiness you may have and He made the promise nonetheless. So what does it mean, Yigro Machet? We discussed it in the past. But why is Yaakov davening if God's already told him it's going to have a good outcome? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that in fact, this should re cause us to reevaluate what prayer is really all about. We don't pray in order to get what we want. We pray in order to become better people. We don't pray in order to earn what we want. Because Yaakov was already told, you're going to get what you want. The exercise of prayer is an exercise in humility. We transform ourselves. We become different people. It's a vehicle for gratitude. It's a vehicle for personal growth. And so, the promise of protection was already intact. The prayer wasn't the means to access the protection. The prayer was, whether we get what we want or not, whether we're already promised to receive it anyway, doesn't mean that we shouldn't go through the exercise. If a parent promises the child, I'm going to give you that thing, does that mean the child shouldn't say, please, can I have it? Does that mean the child shouldn't say, thank you for, ha- for giving it? And so it tells us that tefillah is not just functional. It's not pragmatic. Tefillah is not a formula for us to achieve what we want. Tefillah is an exercise of self-empowerment, of self-growth, It's how we develop a relationship. It's how we become who we are meant to be and how we become the best version of ourselves. Okay, so Yaakov engages in this triple strategy and he's getting ready to encounter Esav. And he does all three of these things. Now what does Yaakov tell us? Im lovan garti. He says, the second passage, he tells the angels, Here's what I want you to tell Esav. Here's the message. You ready? Here's my diplomacy. You know where I've been? Hey brother, you know why I haven't 
reached out, made a bid for connection till now. In love on Garti. And so it took me a while to get out of there. I was not living in the lap of luxury. I was not living in a conducive situation to be able to reach out to you. I was living with Lavan. It was a struggle to survive. It was a battle every day. And that's why I haven't had the freedom. I haven't had the space, the margin, to be able to reach out to you. What do we know? He says, Imlavan Garti. So Chazal have two interpretations of Imlavan Garti. The two interpretations look at Rashi. Number one, Garti. This is all the overview of the Parsha, by the way. We're on the second puzzle. Imlavan Garti. Lona Asesi Sarvet Chashuv Eliger. I never became a full resident. What does Yaakov not say? Imlavan. The Rav points this out in his Chumash. He should have said, Imlavan Yashavti. 20 years is a long time. I settled with Lavan. I was living with Lavan. If you're from Brooklyn, you'd say, I was living by Lavan. <laughs> but he doesn't say, Yashavti. He doesn't say, Yashavti, I live there. What does he say, Imlavan? Garti. What's the difference between Garti and Yashavti? What is a Ger? A Ger is a stranger. I may have had a residence. My mail may have come to Lovin's address for 20 years, for two decades. But I want you to know, I never settled in there. I want you to know I was never a full resident. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is, Im Lovin Garti, Garti is Gematria Tayag, 613. I was living with Lavan. In Lavan Garti, I lived there. V'tariag mitzvah shamarti. But I never compromised an iota on my lifestyle, on my values, on my principles. I was living with Lavan, and I didn't compromise whatsoever. Salam Rabbi asks, he says, you know, these two interpretations seem to contradict. Im Lavan Garti, I remained a ger is an expression of humility, right? I, I never, I wasn't a sar v'chashuv. Hey, hey Esav, lest you think that I think I'm all that, you think I stole that bracha and the bracha was actualized and realized and I became some aristocrat, some wealthy, prominent celebrity, you should know, im lavan garti. I was a ger, I was a nothing, I was a gurnished, I was nothing. That's a reflection of humility. But the second interpretation seems to contradict the first and says, Im Lavan Garti, hey Esav, you think you can mess with me? You think that I'm going to be malleable or bend or flexible to you? I lived with the worst. I lived with love on 20 years. And I didn't change an iota. So Salam Rebbe says the two interpretations seem to contradict. Which is it? Is Yaakov telling the Malachim to deliver a message of humility? Love, uh, Esav. Have no fear, I'm still a nothing, I'm gurnished, I lived with Lavan, I lived with Lavan, and he didn't recognize me at all. Or is he telling him a message of self-confidence? I live with Lavan, he couldn't touch me, and neither could you. Seems to contradict. So Islam Rebbe develops this very beautiful idea. And he says, What happens when they meet? Let's keep going. Yaakov and Esav meet, right? He divides the camp. He also asks that question. Why is Yaakov the Yaakov is afraid, he's worried, he's got anxiety, he divides the camp, he says, if Esav wipes half them out, I'll still have the other half. What happened to his Amunah and Bitachon? 
God said everything's going to be okay. Why is he dividing the camp in half? Doesn't that show too much initiative? Get ready for battle? It's the proper status. It's good initiative. Diplomacy? Send gifts? It's the right amount of initiative. But divide, divide the camp in two and already anticipate you're going to lose half your children, that seems to contradict Amuna and Bitachon that Yaakov lived with faith. Isn't that excessive? Asks the Slonim Rebbe. So he says, keep reading. What happens? They meet. Even before the meeting. Yaakov says, Save me from my brother, from Esav. Why would Yaakov have to daven in that redundant way? Why couldn't he just say, Save me from my brother, or save me from Esav? And if he wants to describe Esav as brother, say, Save me, miyad achi, Esav. Why does he say, miyad achi, save me from the hand of my brother, save me from the hand of Esav? It seems totally redundant. Good. Next question. We're going to answer them all up. Next question. It says that when they finally meet, what happens? Esav runs and greets and embraces Yaakov. And he gives him a kiss. Where's the kiss? Hatzlinina. Sarashleta. Bum, 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 bum. Sorry. Fast forward. When they meet, here it is. Bottom page 176. Esav runs towards him. He grabs him. He kisses him on the neck. And they cry. What's over the word Vayishakeyu? It's not only over that word in your stone chumash. It's over that word in the Sefer Torah itself. A group of dots. A dots over every letter of the word. Say Chazal. Why is that dot? Why are those dots there? It's a code. Rashi quotes Chazal. Nakud alav. They're dots. And why are they dots? To tell you. Amar Shem Bar Yochai. Halachahi. B'yadua she'esav sona liyakov. Even though externally, on the surface, it looks like Esav is embracing Yaakov, no matter when the nations of the world embrace the Jew, never forget that inherent, intrinsic within the nations of the world is an anti-Semitism, is a bias, is a discrimination. So he kissed him with all of his heart at that moment, but inside, never forget halacha biyadua. But Chazal say that Esav was not really kissing Yaakov. What was he doing? He wanted to bite Yaakov's neck. He was going for the jugular, literally and figuratively. He was trying to bite the jugular and kill Yaakov. Yaakov's neck miraculously hardened. We are, after all, a stiff-necked people. And he was saved from Esav's attack. Lastly, Eskoslanim Rebbe, normally when the rabbi is given interpretation, it adds another layer of interpretation. But it doesn't substitute the original layer. So what's going on here? Which is it? Did he kiss him? Or was it an attempted murder? Normally, it's an additional layer of interpretation. It complements the first simple meaning of the text, but it doesn't contradict it. But here, the simple meaning of the text is a hug and a kiss. The interpretation of the rabbis is exactly the opposite. Not a hug and a kiss, it's an attempted murder. So to summarize, what were the Slonim Rebbe's questions? Number one, the two interpretations of Lavangarti. 
Was Yaakov being boastful? I lived with Lavan, and I didn't compromise on Iota. Tarya mitzvah shamati. Or no, was, Lavan, was Yaakov being humble? In Lavan Garti, I lived with him, and I was a ger. I wasn't, I wasn't a toshav. I wasn't a resident. I had no honor. I had no status. I was a gurnisht. I was a nobody. Which is it? Number two, why is he splitting the camp? Where's his amunah bitachon? Number three, why miyad achim miyad esav from the hand of my brother from the hand of esav? Just say one or the other, or say miyad achim esav. Why miyad achim miyad esav? And number four, doesn't the additional layer of interpretation seem to contradict the simple meaning? Did he kiss him, or did he try to kill him? It can't be both. And the Slanam Rabbi develops a very beautiful idea. I encourage you to read the whole piece in his Nesiva Shalom. He says, really in a derech of Hasidus, Hasidus Torah, that's not trying to provide the under simple meaning of the text, but apidrush, trying to extrapolate moral lessons from the text. So the Slanam Rabbi says, why are we reading all this story? It happened years ago, and, and who cares? Anything we're reading in the Torah has relevance for us today. It's eternal. It's timeless. And what Yaakov did to engage in his battle is a model and a precedent for us to learn from when we engage in our battles. Who is the equivalent of the ace of in our lives? Okay, Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, whatever. But more specifically, if you're living in comfort in Boca Raton, Florida, under a palm tree, who is your ace of? The Yetzahara. The Yetzahara within us, the urge, the temptation, the drive, the desire to make mistakes, to show poor judgment, to violate God's will, to have indiscretions, to do bad things, that Yetzahara is our Esav. And what the Torah is telling us is the same methodology Yaakov employed in combating Esav is the same methodology, it's instructive, that it's the methodology we are to employ in order to combat our Yetzahara. So now go back. He says the following. Brilliant insight. There are two Yetzaharas we struggle with. There's the overt, explicit Yetzahara. We know something is bad for us. We struggle with it. We confront it. We hope we can overcome it. And the Torah tells us how to overcome it. Those who come to the afternoon call on Monday. Several weeks ago, Masechus Kedushin, Aflamid, we learned this. Barasi Yetzahara, Barasi Torah Tavlin. God says, I created the Yitzhahara, and you want to know what the antidote is? Torah. Mashcheu lebeis medrash. Drag the Yitzhahara into the base medrash. The answer to the Yitzhahara is, stay grounded and rooted and anchored in Torah. If you study Torah, and you live by Torah, if you make it to Minyan every day, if you're davening with Kavana, if you're listening to Shiurim, Torah will ground you, will anchor you, it will give you the strength in order to overcome the Yitzhahara. You know how to me that works? Is it's like uh, exercise. When you're in a good place with your exercise, it helps you be in a good place with your eating. Why? Because when you see the piece of chocolate cake, you say, you know, you know what a pain it was to go walking five miles or jogging or exercise. I'm not going to lose all that for this piece of cheese, for this piece of cheesecake, this piece of chocolate cake. So when you're already exercising, you say, I put in the time, I put in the energy, I put in the effort, so it overflows. If you're not exercising, you might as well eat. If you're eating, you might as well not exercise. But if you're exercising, then it's going to help you eat better. If you're learning Torah, you're going to say, look, I'm already going to the Dafyomi, I'm already, I go to Minyan, I already listened to the class, and I already slept to Goldberg's Pasha class. I learn, 
I'm not going to give in to that Yetzirah. Barasi Yetzirah, Barasi Torah, Tavon. We discussed that at length in the afternoon call. You can listen to that online. Why is it called Tavon? Tavon means spice. How is the Torah a spice vis-a-vis the Yetzirah? It should be an antidote. It should be a medicine, an elixir. What does it mean that it's a spice? You got to listen to that class online. So, says the Slonim Rebbe, there's a Yetzirah which is overt, which is explicit. But then there's a much more pernicious Yetzirah. And what is that? The Yetzirah which dresses up as the Yetzirah Tov. It's the Yetzirah which presents itself to us as, it's not really bad, Nasa Lakaheter, it's really okay. And beyond Nasa Lakaheter is even more, Nasa Mitzvah. Not only is it not wrong, it's okay. Not as only is it okay, it's a mitzvah. Uh, look, you deserve it. It's extenuating circumstances. It's for the purpose of outreach. It's for the reason of shalom bias. It's for whatever extenuating circumstance. That is a very dangerous Yetzirah which dresses itself up as if it's the Yetzirah Tov. Says the Stunam Rebbe, Yaakov says to Hashem, I don't know who I'm going to encounter. Miyad Achi, Miyad Esav. Is this going to be Esav who's my enemy? My Yetzirah who's clearly my enemy? Or miyad achi? Am I going to encounter an enemy who's presenting itself to me as a brother? I don't know which one I'm going to encounter. And the attitude you have to have towards each is different. And that's why the imlavan garti has two interpretations. Because if it's the miyad, if it's the miyad of the enemy, you can combat the enemy with humility, with the study of Torah. But if it's the miyad achi, then you have to combat it with a stronger notion. Don't think that you can penetrate. Don't think that you can compromise me. What does it mean he divided his camp in two? Says the Rebbe. It doesn't mean he divided them literally physically. It means he divided his attitude, his lifestyle in two. A piece of him with humility and a piece of him with self-confidence. A piece of him that was aggressive and a piece of him that was more <laughs> passive. It all depended on which Yetzirah it would encounter the one that's Esav or the one that is Achi. Why does the Pasuk say he kissed him? Did he kiss him or did he try to kill him? The answer is, it's not a, we said it, it's a contradiction. Normally the Chazal's interpretation complements, doesn't contradict. Says the Son of Merebbe, here too Chazal's interpretation is not contradicting, it's complementing. Esav was trying to kill him. How does the Yetzirah sometimes try to kill us? With a kiss. It tries to kiss us affectionately saying, I'm your brother, but really what it's doing, its methodology is to kill us in that way. So therefore, this Parsha is really the story of how to gird ourselves, prepare ourselves to battle. And who is our modern day enemy? Our enemy is the Yetzer, the Yetzer Okay, that is the interpretation of the Slonim Rebbe. When Esav meets, we then have, it's interrupted by, we have the wrestling match, Yaakov and the Sarosh al they wrestle the whole night. We commemorate, we memorialize this by not eating the Giranasha. Spoken about that at length one year, we went through this whole sugya. It's very funny that we would make a mitzvah that memorializes a negative thing. Right? Yaakov was injured. Why would you memorialize that by not eating something? You should have a mitzvah to eat something. You should have a mitzvah to have a party. You should have a mitzvah to do something proactive. You have a, pot, you have a mitzvah to refrain from something, to memorialize Yaakov's victory over the angel? 
the Chizkuni says, we've quoted this often, that's not what we're memorializing. We're actually memorializing the fact that Yaakov was all alone. Why was he vulnerable to this wrestling match, this fight? He went back to get the Pachem Ketanim. Tzadikim Marchasa, Tzadikim care about even a small amount of money. And he went back to recover that small amount of money, but he was all alone. Nobody accompanied him. He was by himself. Yaakov, the one who says, Achi, who calls his own sons his brothers. Yaakov, the one who's into camaraderie and love and companionship and support, finds himself all alone. And that being all alone left him vulnerable to the attack. And we don't eat the Gidanasha to remember that a Jew can never leave another Jew all alone. That our responsibility is to step up for another Jew. And by refraining to eat the Gidanasha, it's a reminder of our obligation to step up and step in for another Jew. I'll tell you towards the end of the parsha, Shimon and Levi, they step up for Dina. How old were they when they did it? Remember this great, great story? Shechem raped their sister Dina. They say to Shechem, and then Shechem says, you know, we raped her, we want to marry her. You want to marry her? No problem. Just a little technical detail. You all need to have a circumcision first. They wait till the third day, the hardest day, and they wipe out the whole town. Yaakov's not so happy. He thinks that they've endangered them. But the Torah doesn't seem to criticize them too much. They step up and stand up for the honor and dignity of their sister. How old were they? They were bar mitzvah bacharim. They were 13-year-old boys. Don't ever underestimate a bar mitzvah bachar. They were 13-year-old. How do we know that? Because the text calls them an ish. And we see from here that an ish, you become an ish. You go from being a minor, a child, to the age of majority, to being an adult at 13. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechron Lavracha, Zechot Tzadik Lavracha says, what do you see from here? Very, very beautiful thought. He says, you know what it means to be an ish? You know what it means to be a man? to be a woman in Judaism, to reach the age, it's when you reach the age that you step up for a fellow Jew. Shimon and Levi step up for Dina, they're an ish, they're the age of bar mitzvah. What does it mean to be an adult in Judaism? If you're a kid, it's excusable that you didn't intercede. You didn't stop the bully, you didn't protect the vulnerable, because you were a kid. It's excusable. But what does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to be a man, to be a woman? It means to, to stand up for another Jew, as Shimon and Levi did. That's what you learn from this parsha. So you see it, the Cheskuni with Yaakov, the Gidanashik memorializes that he was all alone, or the Lubavitcher Rebbe's insight about Shimon and Levi stepping up for, stepping up for Dina. What were they wrestling about? Yaakov and the angel? What are they wrestling about? Come on, what does the Pasuk say? What are they wrestling about? It's good that none of you know, because the Pasuk doesn't say. <laughs> Rabbi Soloveitchik points out, the Torah never tells us what they were wrestling about. And the Rav says, you know why? Because it wasn't important what they were wrestling about. What was important is that Yaakov was wrestling. Where does growth happen? Where does breakthrough happen? When we wrestle, when we struggle. When we're complacent, when we're passive, then we deteriorate, we decline. It's where there's struggle... There's growth. And that's when Yaakov's name is changed to Yisrael. That's where there's breakthrough. What you also see, this is the opposite of the Chizkuni, is where does breakthrough happen? When you're alone. When there's no noise, when there's quiet. Zohar tells us what night was this? The wrestling match? Anyone know? 
Kol Nidre night, Yom Kippur night. We on Kol Nidre, we for the Yom Kippur, 25 hours, kind of experience a solitude within the community. We wrestle with ourselves, we wrestle with our own angel. And that's Yom Kippur is, in some ways, emulating this experience of, of Yaakov. He and Ace of meat, and Ace of asks him, Lemiata, Vana Selech, Ulumi Elulafanecha, to whom do you belong? And where are you going? And for whom are these before you? So Rabbi Salavichik writes, My brother Esav Yaakov told his agents, We'll ask you three questions. Right, going back to the beginning of the Pasha. My brother is going to ask you three questions. To whom do you belong? To whom do you, a metaphys- as a metaphysical being, a soul, as a spiritual being, belong? And where are you going? To whom is your historical destiny committed? To whom have you consecrated your future? What is your ultimate goal, your final objective? Who is your God and what is your way of life? These two inquiries are related to your identity as members of a covenantal community. However, Yaakov continued, My brother Esau will also ask a third question. And for whom are these before you? Are you ready to contribute your talents, capabilities, and efforts towards the material and cultural welfare of the general society? Are you willing to pay taxes to develop and industrialize the country? This third inquiry is focused on the temporal aspects of life. Yaakov told his agents to answer the third question in the positive. It is a gift sent to my master. We feel obligated to enrich society with our creative talents and to be constructive and useful citizens. Yet in regard to the first two questions, he commanded his representatives to reply in the negative, clearly and precisely, boldly and courageously. He commanded them to tell Esav that their soul, their personality, their metaphysical destiny, their spiritual future and sacred commitments belong exclusively to God and his servant Yaakov. What a beautiful interpretation. Yaakov says to his agents, when you get there, Esav is going to ask you these three questions, and here's how I want you to answer. To whom do you belong and where are you going? Esav is testing you. Are you loyal citizens of America, or are you only, you care about elsewhere? And for who, whom are these before you? What are these gifts? And Yaakov said, I want you to be very clear. I want you to be bold and courageous when you tell him that we are Jews, and that we answer to a higher authority, and that we have a different mission and purpose. And we lead a different lifestyle. But who are these for? Oh, these are for you. Because when it comes to contributing our part to society, we're not just takers, we're givers. Absolutely we'll be part of society. So the Rav sees within Yaakov's instruction to his agents in the conversation they're going to have with Esav, really a mission statement for Jews in life. And the Rav says this again, and we see this again now, when after Esav and Yaakov exchange their conversation, and they part ways... And what does Esav say to Yaakov? No. First, I love the Musar Esav gives Yaakov. Vayomer Esav, Yeshli Rav, Achi, Yelacha Shalach, Vayomer Yaakov, Anayim Nant, Matzasi Chain. We have this whole discussion. Esav says to Yaakov, Where'd you get all this stuff? I thought you were the simpleton. I thought you were the one who lived spiritually, who didn't care about the physical, material world. What's with all this stuff? And where does Yaakov go after this experience? The Yaakov Nasa Sukosa, the bottom line, page 178. Esav, or Yaakov in the Medrash, tells us that Yaakov interprets Esav's comments as Musr, that he had gotten too indulgent in the physical world. He was enjoying it too much. And so he's reminded he has to step back, that he is the Ishtam Yoshev Oalim, that he hasn't prioritized physical, but the spiritual. So where does he go in order to remember that the physical is temporary and the spiritual is enduring? Where does he go? First time we see this word in the Torah. Where does he go? He goes to Sukkot. 
right? I know we're now almost Hanukkah, but remember this vort for next Sukkot, that Sukkot corresponds with Yaakov, right? The Shalash Regalim correspond with the Shalash Avos. Sukkot corresponds with Yaakov because Yaakov goes to Sukkot. When Esav gives him Musr, hey brother, what's with all this stuff? I thought you're not into stuff. That's me, I'm into stuff. And Yaakov hears the, huh, he hears the Musr. Yaakov Nassah, where does he go? Sukosa. Goes to live outside in a sukkah for a little bit. To remember that the physical, the house, is not as important. So, but Esav tries to recruit him and says, no, let's go together. And what does Yaakov say? Esav says, Travel, we'll go, I'll go alongside you. And what does Yaakov say? I'm sorry, we're slow, I've got a bunch of women, children, it's going to slow you down, I don't want to hold you back. Go ahead, go without us. Says Rabbi Salavichik, what was, what was Yaakov telling him? Esav's suggestion reflects the argument of the modern anti-Semite. Why should Jews be so different? Why should they not assimilate with the rest of us? Let us travel together. Indeed, our way of life is completely different. We celebrate our holidays differently. We write in a different direction from right to left. Our uniqueness awakens opposition and anti-Semitism due to a lack of understanding of our way of life. Yaakov responded, the Jews will remain a separate people. And until I came to my master to Seir, when the Messianic promise, Valumoshim al Sion, al then Esav himself will also recognize the master of the universe. In other words, we have to walk separate ways until where? Until, until Esav's mountain, Har Seir, Har Esav. So until then, when you will recognize our God, then we can be on the same page. But until then, we're on two different pages. Two different cultures, two different ways of life, two different systems of value, two different sets of priorities. So Esav says, "New, come walk with me, assimilate, blend in, melting pot, drop your differences, join me. And if you're not going to, I'm going to maintain my, my bias against you. And Yaakov says, do what you have to do, but I have to walk separately. We walk different walks we walk different ways of life. Another beautiful, beautiful insight. Yeah. 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 Yitzchak bestowed the birchas Avram and Yaakov, granting him the right to inherit the land. He fulfilled the condition of not taking a Canaanite wife. Esav understood he could not reverse that decision. But at this point, he asked Yaakov if they could continue traveling together. Maybe Esav could have some of Avram's blessing as well. Okay, the parsha continues. As we reference Dina's abduction, the uh, Shimon and Levi take out revenge. They decimate Shechem. Why were they allowed to? Isn't this, isn't this collective punishment? We talked about that in the past also. I think last year or two years ago, we talked about that. What are the ethics of collective punishment? Maharal says this was war. Shechem waged war, and in war, all's fair. So therefore, it wasn't collective punishment, it was responding to an act of war. But isn't this something which is collective punishment on their part? Yaakov goes to Beit El, which is what we're going to discuss in, inside. Rivka and Devorah die. Shem gives a new name to Yaakov, he's now called Yisrael. Benjamin is born, and then Rachel dies. She's buried on the side of the road, not together with her beloved. We ended last week with this. Leah, who easily had children and dreamt of being a wife, 
spends eternity next to Yaakov. Rachel, who was a wife but dreamt of becoming a mother, spends eternity as the Mama Rachel. Each for eternity got the dream that they failed to realize within their own life. Why is Rachel buried on the side of the road? We saw last week it was a punishment. She gave up her night with Yaakov in exchange for the Dudaim. And because she was willing to forfeit a night with the great Yaakov, she forfeited eternity. It's a pretty harsh punishment being next to Yaakov. Ruvain, when Rachel dies, Ruvain, who was the same story with the Dudaim, the same Ruvain, boldly now goes and takes Yaakov's bed out of the tent of Bila and puts it next to the, in his mother's tent. It says it was bad enough that my mother Leah, who played second fiddle her whole life, had to share my father with Rachel. But now that Rachel's gone, he's got to share, she has to share my father with Bila? No way. This was deemed an act of incredible chutzpah. Incredible chutzpah. Ruvain makes right for it. When? When does he disappear to go make right for it? The sale of Yosef. He disappears, he comes back, he finds him in the pit. Where did he go? He was dealing with this story. So, uh, but anyway, Chazal are very critical of Ruvain. Supreme chutzpah. You tell your father that what he's doing is wrong and who he needs to spend his nights with and his time with? Ruvain is highly criticized for this. Yaakov and Yitzchak are reunited. And uh, Yitzchak dies. And then we have Esav who separates himself and the genealogy of Esav. And that is the end of the parsha. Let's go back and look at our section for the few minutes that we have left. Sorry. We'll try to go through it somewhat quickly. Okay. I want to look at uh, top of page 188. It's Perak Lamed Pasuk Tess. Chapter 38, verse 8. Chapter 35, verse 8. It's a psucha. It's where there's a break in the text, which tells us it's a new section, and that's why it's an appropriate place to resume. Top of page 188. Got it? I'm sorry. 186. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Top of page 186. Lamed Hay Aleph. Lamed Hay Aleph. Chapter 35, verse 1. Lamed Hay Aleph. I apologize. Vayomer Elokim Yaakov. Kum alei beis el v'shev sham v'yasei sham mizbeach lakel anera ilacha bevarcha mipnei Esav achicha. God says to Yaakov, get up and go back to Beit El. What do you mean back to Beit El? When was Yaakov in Beit El? What happened in Beit El? That's where he had the dream of the ladder. Bechlal, a very confusing topic. Was this ladder on Harabayas, Haramoriah? Was it in Beit El? Did it extend from Beit El to Harabayas? Okay, leave the ladder part out. But the dream where Yaakov lay his weary head was Beit El. Anyone here been to Beit El, modern Beit El? If you've been to the modern city of Beit El, you know that at the entrance into the Yishuv is a billboard. And on it, it's written, the Pasuk about Beit El, and it says, Beit El is not 70 years old, or it's not 50 years old. Beit El is thousands of years old. And Jews have been living there since our forefather Yaakov went to sleep and had a dream of a ladder here in Beit El. It's an amazing. Right? When you drive into Boca, it just says you've entered the township of Boca Raton. It's not so exciting. When you drive into Beit El, it says, we've been here for thousands of years 
Our great-great-great-great-grandfather had a dream here. You all know that dream. We've been here a long time. It's not new. So God says, go back to the place you had the dream. Why was it important for him to go back there? Do you recall that Yaakov made a neder? He made a promise. He took a vow that he would go back there. Vaidur Yaakov neder lemor. Page 146, if you want to see it inside or you could just listen. Yaakov took an oath, a vow. He said, if God will be with me and protect me on the way and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, and if I can come back to this place, if I can return. So God says, Yaakov, you've had the reunion with Esav. You survived Lavan. You've got wives and children. It's time to make good on the vow. It's time to go home. It's time to shev sham. It's time to go back. And there, and there, you should make an altar. So Yaakov tells his family, and everyone with him, get rid of any idolatry within you. And purify yourself and change your clothing. And we're going to go to Beit El. Rav Avinair, who's the Rav of Beit El, has a tshuva. Do you have to call it Beit Kel? Can you call it Beit El? We don't say God's name. So why do we call it Beit El? Maybe we should have to call it Beit Kel. And every letter that's addressed to someone living in Beit El, does the envelope have to go into Shemus? Can you put the envelope in the garbage when you address it to someone living in Beit El? So Rav Avinair, the Rav of the Yeshuva, has a tshuva in his Sheila Shlomo about this. He says, Betel is the name of a city. True, within the name of the city is Hashem's name, but it's not being used as Hashem's name. It's being used as the name of a city. So get up and go to Betel and make a Mizbeach to God who answered you, me on my day of, of calling him. And God was with me. Right, right now you see the inverse of the language that was used. Vaidur Yaakov neder lemor. Yaakov took an oath. If God will walk with me on the way. So he says, God answered me. And he was with me on the way. In other words, each of the conditions of Yaakov's oath, he's now articulating that those conditions, those criteria were fulfilled. So they, the children, gave Yaakov all the idolatry that were in their hands. Why did Yaakov's children have idols? Anyone ever pay attention to this? The, uh, the, the rings, the jewelry, and Yaakov hid them under a tree near Shechem. So they travel. They travel, and there is a feeling of Hashem's presence on the cities around them. Nobody from the neighboring towns of Shechem are trying to take revenge. Why? Because they understand there's a divine protection around Yaakov and his family. Yaakov gets to lose. Everyone with him. Once he arrives, he returns to where he took that promise. Now he makes good on it. He builds a mizbeach. He calls it Beit El. Because that's where God had been revealed to him when he was fighting with his brother. Who's Devora? Devora is a very... Um, we don't know a lot about her, an enigmatic figure. Here the Torah identifies her. She's the Meinekes Rivka. She's Rivka's wet nurse. We really care about that? What's she doing there? Oh, 
And the name of this place where Devorah dies and is buried is called the place of crying, alone Bachus. Okay, that's the section we're going to study for the next tiny period of time. But I wanted to read you the overview, read you the whole section, and now let's go back and dissect it a little bit. So God says to him, get up and go back. Rashi, Kum says, Yaakov delayed on the way back. Yaakov should have made good on this promise earlier. He didn't. It took too long. And because it took too long, that's why Dina was raped. When one follows the will of Hashem, one merits the protection of Hashem. And when one delays and procrastinates and is lazy and takes a detour from the will of Hashem, Hashem withdraws His protection and the natural elements are allowed to function, says Rashi. But it's time to go back. Veshev Sham. Why is he going back? So the Svarno says, why, why not build the Mizbeach here? Right? You just survived this battle with Shechem. You just survived the reunion of Esav. You survived getting out of Lavan's home. I would think build the Mizbeach and thank Hashem now. Why is that delayed until you first go back to Beit El? Says the Svarno, you know why? First go settle your mind. Go back home. Come full circle, and only then build the Mizbeach. Where do we see that? Says the Sfarno, as the rabbis say, Our rabbis say, we spend an hour getting ready, directing our minds, eliminating the distractions before we daven. An hour getting ready, an hour of davening, an hour after davening. We've taken off the zero. Maybe six minutes getting ready, six minutes davening, six minutes coming off. But this is the origin of Psuke de Zimra. The idea that you can't get up and walk right into davening and be transformed by davening, you have to get ready, you have to prepare, you have to get the mindset. So the Svarno says, this is kind of a precursor to all that. That Yaakov, first get ready, go back to Beit El, settle your mind, prepare, and then bring a Mizbech. Don't rush into davening, get ready, eliminate distractions, settle your mind, and only then daven, says the Svarno. Svarno adds also, what was the purpose of this Mizbeach? This Mizbeach was like, When you have a miracle happen to you in a certain place, it's quoted in Shulchan Aruch, that there's a bracha you recite. Why don't we do this today? Should someone make a bracha if their family survived Auschwitz? You go back to Auschwitz, do you make a bracha? If you're on the Yardin where the Jewish people cross the Yardin into Israel, do you make the bracha? Yamsuf. You see Yamsuf that's split, do you make the bracha? And Mishnah Bura has a discussion why we don't make the bracha today. But just like a person should make a bracha where the miracle happened, says the Svarno Yaakov, go back to where the miracle happened, where you made this deal with Hashem and He made you the promise, and He saved you from your brother Esav. Go back there first, and then build the Mizbeach, and that's what's going on over here. That's what the Svarno says. The Ramban adds, Says the Rabban, I don't know why it says go back there. Maybe Yaakov and his family had to be purified from the experience of Shechem. You know, they defeated Shechem. What happens when you defeat the enemy? What do you take? The spoils. What was among the spoils? The pagans and the paganism, the idolatry of the people of Shechem. 
So maybe, says the Ramban, God was telling him, go back and filter out, get rid of all of that, which the Psukim certainly support this, and only then build the Mizbeach from a position of purity and from a position of sanctity. And Yaakov, with alacrity and zeal, seeks to fulfill this even before getting back to Beit El. And that's why the ensuing Psukim say, he tells his children, get rid of the Avodah Zarah. Okay, so Ramban gives another interpretation why God is telling Yaakov it's time to go back to Beit El. The Orachayim gives a third interpretation. Says the Orachayim, why are you going back there? Because I know it's Meretz Kenani. But now, you have nothing to be afraid of. You survived Lavan, you survived Esav, you survived Shechem, Go back, and even though when you were last there it was from a position of fear and anxiety and running away, now you can go back there with a position of confidence and a position of feeling whole and being complete. Yaakov tells his sons, his family, get rid of your idolatry. Rashi says, Within the spoils you have, Get rid of the idolatry. Change your clothing because maybe in the pocket of your clothing is our idols. Get rid of it all. What does Yaakov do with it? He buries it under a tree near Shechem. What is this reminiscent of? The notion of of um, purify yourself and change your clothing and prepare for a few days and then we'll build the Mizbech. What is that reminiscent of? Harsinai, exactly. This is perhaps a masa of a simon labanum, like a precedent for Harsinai. Before you can achieve and experience holiness, ain kedusha b'li hachana. There's no holiness without preparation. People come to shul, they just finish the coffee, and they're burping up the donut, and they're burping out the New York Times, and they're finished with whatever they did, and they, I'm not inspired. Where's the inspiration? They came in the middle of Shema, Shemona Esrei, it's already up to the laning, they're walking out for the Navi Haftorah to go have the next, uh, whatever they're going for. So, and I'm not inspired. Where's the inspiration? What did you put into the inspiration? What effort did you make? What preparation did you lay? So, this Yaakov is told, get rid of the idolatry, purify yourself, change your clothing, and then you'll get to Beit El and bring him his Beach. It's like the Harsinai experience. The Ibn Ezra says, it's actually reminiscent of something else that we experience daily. First wash. And change your clothing. When do we wash and change our clothing to get ready for? Davening. Shabbos too. But davening, says the Ibn Ezra. Three things we learn. Yaakov goes back to Beit El where he had davened to Hashem previously. That in order for davening to be to have a concentration, you need a makam kavua. You should have a set place to daven, number one. Number two, you have to wash your hands before you daven. Yaakov is told, hey taharu, shayir chatsu, wash. And number three, people have a davening jacket, a davening hat, a garto. One should not daven in, in, in your barefoot, in slippers, and in, in your pajamas. You have to, you're coming before the king. You prepare what that looks like. Is different for people, different generations, and so on. But says the Ibn Ezra, you see all these three things from the way Yaakov treats and goes back to, and goes back to Beit El. But let's finish up. There was a lot more to say. But let's talk about this Devoro. 
Who is this Devorah? Says Rashi. Who is this Devorah? Ma'in and Devorah, but Beis Yaakov. We're talking about Yaakov and Rachel and Leah and the Shifte Ka. Who's Devorah? Says Rashi, Elafisha Amra, Rivka Liakov, Shalachti, Lakakti, Misham, Sholcha Devorah, et Lola Padana Ram, Latseis Misham, Umesa Baderach, Medivar Moshe Hadarshan, Lamantia. So Rashi quotes Rab Moshe Darshan, who says, Who is this Devorah? Devorah was the nurse that Lavan gave Rivka when she left to marry Yitzchak. So Lavan sent Rivka, and uh, when Rivka married Yitzchak, Lavan sent this, um, this nurse. So now Rivka sends this Devorah to Haran to tell Yaakov it's safe to come home. Rivka, who orchestrated the whole deception, and said, Yaakov, get lost. Your brother's going to kill you. She now sends her own nurse that Yaakov's going to be familiar with. Sends her own nurse to tell Yaakov it's safe. It's safe to come home. But what happened? Devorah's not a young lady. She's not a spring chicken at this time. So it's a long, arduous journey. And she dies along the way. And that's what the Torah is telling us. Thomas Devorah may nekas Rivka. And she's buried there in Beit El. The Ramban disagrees. Says the Ramban, I don't know what he's doing here. So he says, maybe the reason it's here is, It's really telling us who died, not just Devorah. What's it really telling us who died? Rivka. Why doesn't the Torah ever tell us that Rivka dies? Why doesn't the Torah ever tell us that Rivka dies and that there's a funeral and who shows up and so on and so forth? So Ramban says, because Esav would have gone to the funeral and it would have been not complimentary to Rivka, but it would have been the opposite that Rivka produced an Esav. So in order to preserve, preserve Rivka's dignity, her death and passing is, uh, is something which is not shared openly here in, in the text. What? Right, when, when, because Yishmael did tshuva. So Yishmael and Yitzchak both came to bury Avram because Yishmael had done tshuva. But when Yitzchak died, right. It says there Esav came too? I don't remember. Yeah, but anyway, that's what the Ramban, that's what the Ramban says here. The, um, the Kliyakar, the Kliyakar says... What's the connection between these two psukim? The Kliyakar says, quotes the Chazal and Moikot, Why did the Torah juxtapose Miriam's passing with the laws of Paraduma? So, so too over here, That just like the Mizbeach is a way to achieve Kapara, and Yaakov is talking about building a Mizbeach and Beit El, we reference the death to tell us why it's there. But I'll close with the words of Rabbi Soloveitchik in his Chumash about Devorah. And Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following. Yeah, Rashi comments that Devorah was the same nurse who accompanied Rivka when she left her father's house. Rivka, we know, was a young girl who exhibited extraordinary chesed, as indicated by the incident that took place at the well between Eliezer 
and Rivka. Rivka was brought up in the house of Besuel and Lavan, in a pagan orgiastic society. How did she exhibit such great humility and chesed, typical of a daughter of Avram? Why was she not influenced by her family and society? There must have been an underground community in Haran, preaching Avram's morality. Rivka was part of this underground movement. She studied and absorbed Avram's philosophy and adopted his Weltanschung, living by his principles of justice and righteousness. Why was the death of an old woman so significant it was recorded in the Torah? Apparently, Devorah played a major role in shaping the history and destiny of the Jewish people. Devorah's death and the naming of the place where she died was recorded because her life was historically important. Devorah was the leader of a moral underground movement. So she's the one who really raised Rivka. And that's what allowed Rivka to become who she was and to be a matriarch of our people. So she has bestowed that great honor here because she's not a nobody. Otherwise, you'd ask, she's the nurse? What is, who cares? Her death, why is that relevant? So suggests the Rav, she's not just some invisible, insignificant footnote to history. She's part of forming history because she's the one who raised Rivka and protected Rivka from the foreign values of her own home. She's the one who was teaching Avram's values within Haran and instilled it within Rivka. And that's why it's significant here as well. Mr. Shem will continue next week. Everyone's invited to stay for Rabbi Moskowitz's great class.